0: Hey everybody, C-Note here and welcome to Dopamine, the show that is like Tommy Pickles breaking out of the baby cage of life. Today on the show, we're talking with Katie Schweitzer about sciencing the shit out of parenting. She has a lot of really great information about how you can be a better parent to your child by simply observing and being aware of your child's behavior and being a little bit more empathetic and taking time to work out some of the middle ground um, when it comes to uh, uh, parenting because there's a lot of misinformation out there and that's really the goal, right? Is to try to be a little bit clearer about all of the things that you're, um, you're focusing on when you're helping to work through your kids. So we kind of take a scientific method approach to, uh, to parenting essentially. There's a lot of talk of like triggers and actions and building routines and all of that stuff. So uh, it's a really good, it's a really good informational episode as you know, me, I'm like, the gap between ignorance and information. And she really brings all the good information. So if you're a parent and you're an entrepreneur and you're struggling a little bit to find the right balance or your kids having some tantrums, we talk about that and all sorts of things. So join me, pull up that beanbag chair, get comfortable, have a good time. Listen to the latest episode of dopamine. Drums, please. (laughs)
1: Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy. But you know what is?
0: Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile
1: on any face.
0: You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer,
1: more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never
0: fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com.
1: I'm Moraka, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets, all that and
0: much more.
1: Listen to Mobituaries with Moraka wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today on the show, I have Katie Schweitzer, who she just informed me. That's how she says her last name. <laughs> welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you. So um, uh, we're doing a little bit more of a parenting-focused show today, something that I haven't uh, touched on very much, and uh, it's something that you specialize in and talk about. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, and what you do.
2: I'm Katie Switzer. I have a company called Guilfree Families, and I work with parents. A lot of them are entrepreneurs um, with young children that are looking for help with getting better sleep or behavioral issues or even independent play and things that facilitate them being able to work from home and have some flexibility with their children.
0: Weird. So um, what what do you typically... What are some of the the kind of typical things that you work on with a client? Uh, what do they come with? What do, what do they come to you with, essentially?
2: Usually, parents come to me with their pain points. So they'll be like behavioral issues, like my child's not sleeping through the night, or um, my child's having trouble listening, and it's making me stressed out, or my life is difficult because of it. So we usually start from the pain point and then work our way back to identify root causes and address them that way instead of just trying to address the symptom of what difficult behavior is happening.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and when, when a parent comes to you, do they typically come to you with, with stress focused on themselves or stress focused on the child in terms of, I guess, in terms of mental health or is it maybe just a little bit of both?
2: Well, usually parents come and they don't really recognize that it's a stress-related problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that's kind of where I can come in and help them to get to know themselves and their child and guide them through that process of identifying what kind of stress is occurring, what the triggers are, you know, how to know when they're starting to enter that space and then right. how to avoid it or work around it in a way that's practical and not just unrealistic.
0: Right. And what kinds of stresses do you find... Um, the, uh, or get revealed, uh, or are there any commonalities between the stresses that both parents or children tend to uh, identify through this process?
2: Usually, um, a lot of it for the parent side is um, things that kind of stem from their own childhood. So, becoming a parent is surprisingly reflexive, and I feel like we get to know ourselves a lot better through being a parent. Right. So when we start to enter that process, a lot of times things come out that were the case in your childhood or things that have happened in your life that you have not yet identified as needing to do the inner work on. Right. And then child stress wise, some of the more interesting things that seem to be very common are things like tantrums in grocery stores or Target, because mm-hmm. a lot of child stresses are related to like sensorial things. So places where there's a lot of bright advertisements or loud noises Kids are surprisingly sensitive to that, and it's hard to identify if you don't know to look for it.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because it's not something that um, is talked about in the sense that, like, the average parent doesn't think about that. They don't think about how much sensory information a child is or isn't taking on. I mean, that could be considered an introvert versus extrovert thing for a child, but also because I think would it be safe to say that some children are very comfortable with sensory overload, or is it? just kind of, have you noticed across the board that more kids seem to be sensitive to this stuff that they're not usually exposed to?
2: So what I think is interesting about this topic, and it ties a lot into like the ADHD and um, autism kind of things that are going on, I don't think that kids' thresholds have changed for the sensory issues. I think that they're still the same. Evolutionarily, it takes a very long time for changes like that to happen, right. but our culture and our environment has changed. So ways, I think because the the threshold hasn't changed, but the actual stimulations have changed, they're right. hitting more people's thresholds, more children's thresholds than they did in the past.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's like, um, what's really interesting is, is that you think about the parents, you know, they've been through modern society. You know, they're, they're uh, essentially biased. They're comfortable with the way that society is uh, in terms of uh, the over sensory, you know, stimulation when it comes to like advertising and bright colors and, and uh, fluorescent lighting and all of that stuff. And then this fresh child comes in and they're exposed to all these new things. And, and essentially, that's one of the main reasons that they would experience these tantrums is uh, uh, just the exposure to new things. And I think one of the things that, um, that maybe leads into some of this is is something that I think about is the fact that when a child is experiencing something, some sort of, um, difficult feeling uh, typically that could be the worst feeling they've ever experienced. Yeah. It could be the equivalent of, of, of losing an, uh, a pet or something, <laughs> uh, but we don't, we don't compare it that way. We just see it as a, t- a child being a baby, you know, and, and, T- you know, for some reason, we expect children to kind of toughen up like we're supposed to.
2: We try to fit them into our adult world and our adult expectations, and that makes it hard for both the parent and the child. And the other interesting thing is, I think if you do a time comparison as well, mm-hmm. if you think about the percentage or like the ratio of a four year old's life to a 30 year old's, that two minutes that you're asking them to wait to them feels like 15 minutes
1: right.
2: and we forget about that as adults but if you think about you know look back to your childhood and those times that you felt impatient or you were waiting for a parent and how difficult that felt for you and now as adult it seems like that should be nothing. Um, it's just interesting to see the different perspectives.
0: Yeah and, and I think that can translate to a lot of different uh, different elements when it comes to like maybe a child feeling Um, or expressing what a parent might seem as being selfish or always wanting things for themselves or or not sharing and things like things that adults still struggle with but we kind of expect children to um, immediately just listen to us and understand and be better than us it's it's kind of fascinating
2: (laughs) I think it's just a natural reaction adults you know we want we want the best for our children, but we don't always know what that means. And so when we see our child having a difficult time, our automatic reaction is to try to fix it immediately. And in a lot of ways, it's taking away the opportunity that the child has to learn and work through those feelings and those issues. So that later on in life, they're better able to handle them.
0: What, What can parents do to, to improve their sense of empathy for their children, for their child's experience? Because we, we can't always look back and say, you know, I remember what that was like when I was five, because, you know, we've got a lot of stuff filtering on top of it at this point. So what can parents do to kind of develop that empathy for their child, whether it's in a moment like that or, or long-term or something they can do on their own?
2: It's observation, really. I mean, the more that you spend time observing your child in a way that's non-intrusive, the more you're going to learn about your child and what they're capable of, how they're feeling, what their stress triggers are. Observation is like the key to being successful in that.
0: Right. And um, uh, anything else that they can do in terms of uh, like general study, any kind of, uh, I don't know, books or YouTube channels or talking to you? <laughs>
1: that they can yeah.
2: do. I mean, uh, we talk, I talk a lot on my business page, guilt Families about ways to identify child stress and what's going on. Um, And I I like to focus on, for both adults and children, a lot of people don't know that there's actually five domains for stress. Mm -hmm. And they are biological, emotional, cognitive, social, and pro-social. And if you start to maybe spend a little bit of time on each one and observing yourself and your child, you'll Mm -hmm. start to see the patterns and then you can basically educate yourself on becoming the expert in your own feelings and your child's feelings to help them work through those issues.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, you, so you mentioned those things. Um, most of those seem self-explanatory. What would be the difference between social and you said pro-social?
2: Yeah. So social is kind of like um, the the feeling that I have when I'm working with other people. So like pro-social would be more, or uh, social would be more like, um, How I'm interacting in social situations, it's focused on me, whereas pro-social is more focused on empathy and relationships between two people. So for children, that would be things like sharing, creating relationships with peers, um, that type of thing.
0: So what would you recommend to a parent who I'm sure there are plenty of parents, especially those that are listening, who have had that situation? They're in a grocery store or Target and their child is freaking out. You know, the, the mother gets this sense or father gets this sense that the child doesn't want to be there anymore, but the parent needs to get the shopping done and we need to keep going. We got to push through this. <laughs> um, you know, what what would you recommend that a parent can do in that moment to either soothe the child or would it be best to you know, get out of that situation and try again later?
2: It depends on the child and what's going on. so if your child's already in a full, full, like full-blown tantrum, usually that's a stress-induced. And it's not always about like being at the grocery store. It could just be that that happens to be the trigger of a lot of things that have happened that day that builds up. But you can do one of two things in that situation of a, like a real tantrum. You can sit down with them and connect with them and forget about the people that are watching because mm-hmm. they don't matter, right? right? Or you can choose to basically leave your cart and come back to it later and bring your child into a situation where they feel more safe and secure. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it's not a reasonable solution to say, well, just don't go to the grocery store because right. that's, that's bad advice, right? That right. That's like a very... It's avoidance. It's, a, it's an elitist view of it too, right. because most parents don't have the convenience to be able to not go grocery shopping. Right. They don't have a nanny to watch your child or you know, somebody to do the grocery shopping for them. Right. But some workarounds that you can have is to just be aware, maybe there's certain times of day when the grocery store is busier and you could avoid that time of day, like go early on a Sunday before mm-hmm. church when not a lot of people are there instead of on a busy Friday night. Um, There's other things you could do, like some grocery stores have click lists, and you can spend five bucks and pick up the groceries. If that's affordable right. for you, that's an alternative that you could think about. So we don't really talk about eliminating stress because we don't want our kids or ourselves to just live in a bubble. Right. <laughs> but we talk about different ways that we can kind of work through it and deal with it and figure out is this a big enough stress that I actually need to eliminate it or is it a stress that we just need to work through exposure on and find some alternatives that work?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's a, that's a very healthy way to approach it, uh, mostly because uh, we're in the process of being empathetic to our children and understanding that they are overwhelmed, and that we're being aware of their needs and are showing that and teaching that and And I would think over time that they would be likely to exhibit that behavior to others as well as they grow.
2: Yeah, there's some really interesting ways to build empathy and stress reduction. Like um, there was a study that I saw recently about roughhousing and how um, roughhousing is critical to developing empathy. So children that are raised in households with single mothers as opposed to single fathers you would think intuitively that the ones raised by mothers would be more empathetic. Mm-hmm. But the study actually showed that children raised by single fathers had more empathy overall and that it was because of rough housing. <clears throat> so mm. there's lots of like fun little, like I don't know if you want to call them parent hacks. Right. There's, there's lots of fun information out there about things that you can do. But um, I think the biggest thing that you can do to reduce your child's stress is to reduce your own, because the more stressed out that you are, your child's going to pick up on that because of their limbic system responding to yours. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a stress state, there's not much you can do to help your child reduce their stress rate. And the whole idea is to just keep getting your stress threshold, your heightened stress response down to zero so that you're no longer in that state long term and it's not a chronic problem for you.
0: Yeah. I mean not only are you, you know, in the grocery store scenario sharing coping mechanisms and teaching through essentially doing, you're showing that you're managing your stress, that it's not just about telling them that they can do something, but showing it and being it and exhibiting it, exhibiting it. And Um, not just observing your child's behavior and uh, adjusting to it, but being aware of your own. I think there are uh, a lot of major issues with parents assuming that their kids are not going to pick up on something or assume that they are, you know, they're not listening or they're not aware of it. And there's, there are so many surprises that like even when a child goes from not speaking to start speaking it's interesting to see like what they actually start to pick up on and start to share and you're like oh where did they get that from
2: (laughs) and and self-regulation it starts with the parent but i mean from birth you have to have some ability to co-regulate with your child because they're dependent on you they're they're helpless And they need you to help show them they're safe and secure and provide them with that so that they can focus on learning and growing. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: if you don't provide them with a um, repeatable, safe and secure environment, I talk about routines a lot. And a Mm -hmm. routine is not the same as a schedule. It's not time-based. A routine is um, basically order-based so that your child knows what to expect. That's why like little kids will drop their food on the floor because they're going, okay, if I drop this on the floor, is it going to fall? Oh, right. okay. If I do it again, is it going to fall again?
1: Right. What if
2: I drop this type of food? What if, um, will mommy pick it up instead of daddy? They're they're testing their environment to look for repeatability. And right. when they get older, they'll start watching TV shows over and over again because they're like, is this what's going to happen? It is. Oh my God. I was right. <sighs> like they love it because their sense of order, especially around age two or three, it peaks. But um, infants from birth, they have this innate sense, this need for order, this need for safety and security. And it's our responsibility as parents to provide that through co-regulation and making sure that we set up their environment for success. That's the best thing that we can do and offer our children.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing, uh, amazing thought and perspective and advice on that. So thank you for that. Um, uh, kind of, um, I, I kind of want to just kind of circle back to the, I keep getting stuck on the uh, grocery store stuff, but <laughs> um, would it, because there are times that I've seen in public with babies with like giant headphones or like sunglasses or things like that. If, if it is sensory overload, are there tips like that? Uh, having your kid wearing sunglasses in the store or something like that, that could help kind of dull things down to make it more uh, uh, approachable?
2: Sure. It's very child dependent. So if you observe that your child struggles during bright lights, that's a totally legitimate way to try to help them. Right. Um, And the only way you'll know is through observation and to try things. Right. Trying things is really effective.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I think there are a lot of varying sort of um, underlying expectations or rules societally as to like what a parent should or shouldn't do for their kids uh one of those things i think about is screen time especially for young kids on with ipads or access to phones or just kind of sitting in them in front of something and watching you know youtube uh baby shark over and over again or something like that um you know uh uh, what what is your perspective on that um just just in general uh any thoughts on that
2: I think there's pretty good evidence that under the age of two screen time doesn't have any benefit. Um, Mm. but, and it probably has some detriment. I think that adult screen time is just as critical as child screen time. You know, the time that you're spending with your child, trying to be focused on them and not spending a lot of quantity time with them where you're on your phone and you're with each other, but instead try to get quality time in each day. Right. But, um, I really think everything in moderation, right? Your children, they're going to grow up in a society that like, I mean, I didn't know, we didn't have cell phones when I was growing up. Right. So, um, and our children do, so they need to be able to manage, um, manage their own technology. And I think that if we're demonstrating healthy ways to consume it in moderation, then that can only be a good thing for our children. Um, so yeah, I guess you wanna limit screen time. There should I don't think there's any hard and fast rule or it should be no, none, ever. But right. I think that you should use it within reason. And if you feel like it's becoming detrimental to your child's development because you're observing that they're not socializing well or they're not communicating well or maybe they're really um, struggling with depression or anxiety,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's
2: when you want to initiate a change because it's not working.
0: And I'm sure it's different to think about screen time, like when you're sitting and watching a movie with them or talking about it or, or, you know, working through an educational program or something like that versus just plunking them in front of the TV. So, you know, mommy can go have a drink or something.
2: (laughs) in some ways, it's good for parents to have a stress relief, right? Right. um, Usually you see more screen time in families that struggle with sleep. One of Mm -hmm. my top services that I offer is sleep consultations especially for toddlers because I think a lot of people think about infant sleep as being difficult and, and their child becomes a toddler and their toddler staying up till 10 or 12 o'clock at night which is not healthy for either the child or the adult
1: mm-hmm. because
2: the child is not getting enough healthy sleep and they're not learning healthy sleep habits and the adult is not getting some time to themselves each evening <laughs> So by doing better sleep education and teaching our children healthy sleep habits, we're benefiting both the the adult to get the stress free time and the child. And what comes hand in hand in that is less of the screen time and less of the urge from the parent to use that screen time as a babysitter.
0: Yeah. And and to kind of move into some of the bedtime stuff, because having a, a child go to sleep can be very difficult. And, um, And 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 building that routine can be tough. I mean, there are always external factors, right? I mean, you maybe you gave them too much sugar a little bit later in the day or something, or like anything could happen. Um, And sometimes I've heard cases of parents almost using bedtime—not bedtime, but like a nap or going to bed—as like punishment in a sense. Like you know, you're you're not being good. I'm going to put you in your room. You're going to go to sleep or something like that. Um, What kind of tactics or techniques can parents start to think about when trying to get their kids into a healthy sleep routine?
2: So I think a healthy sleep routine is just like an adult's for a child. You're creating sleep cues that are repeatable, that they're um, functional, and that they're not dependent on you. Because if you are a sleep cue or a sleep prop, then that affects your ability to go and allow them to sleep independently. Right. So it's just like if I came into your bedroom when you were sleeping and I took away your pillow and you woke up in the night and you were like, where's, wait, wait, what? And you'll have trouble getting back to sleep because you'll go, where is my pillow? Right. And you won't be able to get comfortable. It's the same way for a child with a sleep prop. So um, not using sleep props that won't be there when they wake up is hard. So um, like a a pacifier is a good example because mm-hmm. for some kids it's not a big deal because they can pop it back in their mouth on their own and then other kids struggle with that. Mm -hmm. So the use of the sleep prop between the two children, you might take a different approach because of the nighttime wakings having a different effect.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the way that the brain, even as a child, will sort of start to piece together systematically you know connection points and triggers and actions i mean there's there's a reason that the internet exists it's a series of triggers and actions and ones and zeros and i kind of think about that a little bit more naturally you know that's kind of like the way my rational brain works but uh, a lot of people don't think about things that way. They're not programmers. So <laughs> they're not thinking about human behavior in that sort of sense. Uh, so that basically all of that is to say that it's incredibly valuable information to think about the fact that your children are aware of every little thing. And and it's not just saying, okay, TV off bedtime. It's, it's like a systematic uh, process, a series of of triggers and events that start to lead up to bedtime so that Mm -hmm. they're starting to, it's almost like you're, you're waving the watch in front of their face and saying you're sleepy, (laughs) but doing that over time with individual events and stuff like that. Would you say that sounds accurate?
2: Yeah, you're. It's it's not much different than well, a lot of your audience is entrepreneurs. So right. it's not that much different than trying to convert a cold audience, right? If you right. just take your child and plunk them into bed, it's like trying to sell to a cold audience. Right. You got to warm them up a little bit, and you're using sleep cues to help make the connections in their brain to signify it's time for sleep. Right. Um, and. The interesting part is that we really don't start pairing connections. We're still making significant connections until we're 26 years old. Right. So some of the parents that are teaching their children how to sleep, they're still making those connections. Their brain is still building as a parent and not just as a child. So you can use that opportunity of having children to learn more about yourself and your own sleep cues while you're teaching your child as well. It's, it's really kind of neat.
0: Yeah, um, there was, um, at, at a point you kind of mentioned uh, depression in children, and we're going to make kind of like a hard right turn here. But um, at first, I want to acknowledge that the comparison to basically uh, uh, entrepreneurial funnels is... a Perfect comparison that I was going to try to get us to. So glad you touched on that um, because it's totally the same kind of thing. You think about people in terms of triggers and actions and getting them comfortable and getting them into a place where they're ready to buy, ready to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can use that within ourselves as well. Um, but anyway, to make that right turn into the depression discussion, because this is about mental health. Um, not only for the parents who are, I'm sure, dealing with their own things and um, having to struggle with getting their own alone time and um, you know, especially if they're working from home and they're also watching the kids at the same time, that can be a struggle. Um, but leaning into depression in children specifically, um, it's not something that I've thought about or done a lot of research in. I typically talk about my own experiences. The earliest that I've felt a sense of depression was 10 years old. Um, and uh, I don't know anything about anything, you know, any kids younger than that have experienced that. So are there signs or symptoms that can be very obvious to a parent that this is something that their child needs to have addressed with a therapist or anything like that?
2: I would say um, if your child is obviously expressing regular bouts of not being happy without explanation if they're showing signs of stress which would be behavioral changes they don't want to eat um, things that they would normally enjoy they don't I mean this, the symptoms are going to be very similar to adults but um, you might have to be a more keen observate, observate observer in order to identify them in children Right. Um, And therapy is certainly where you would want to try to pursue if you think that your child's struggling with that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I'm sure the therapist would give uh, the parent some advice on how to uh, Mm -hmm. address it day to day.
2: Yeah, the big thing is being able to identify the difference between stress behavior and misbehavior because stress behavior is not a choice, right? Misbehavior might be um, your child's testing boundaries, which is totally natural, and they might give you the sly eye or be easily distracted, but stress behavior is not a choice for them. And being able to observe and identify that will help you to see when your child's having mental health issues so that you can address it early.
0: Yeah, I tend to find so I, I kind of grew up in a family that uh, we didn't go to the doctor much. If my parents saw anything in me, they probably wouldn't take me. You know, it was very much like the tough it out kind of situation. Um, I tend to tell people when I have any kind of discussion about mental health or they talk to me about what's going on with them to discuss. Uh, to, to go through things with a therapist, um, even if you feel like you're okay, I feel like healthy people should go to a therapist the same way they get a checkup uh, at the doctor. Um, do you feel that's the same with kids, you know, not just going to a physical doctor, but you know, working with someone mental health wise, if they can afford it, of course.
2: You know, I think it really is family dependent. And mm-hmm. really, as an adult, if you have good codependence with your child and your own self-regulation is good you're gonna provide that role in their life. And I think you might have some difficulty finding the availability of service providers if you don't have a diagnosed problem, which right. might be like an overall issue in society. But um, I really agree with you that there's a lot of benefit to having a regular tune-up and it would be nice if that was an accepted kind of thing for kids too, just to mm. you know, check, check what's going on under the hood.
0: Right. And, and not only just to be, you know, to, to have them lie on the couch and tell them all their, <laughs> tell the therapist all their thoughts and feelings, but to, uh, to be exposed to new people, to, to gain trust in different kinds of people, to learn, because sometimes, especially if you've got like, you know, a, a single mother or a single father uh especially if they're like an introvert the kid doesn't get out very much you know it, it's another way to get someone to engage with other adults or other people in their lives and and uh, and, and new learn new things i guess
2: <laughs> usually kids that don't get a lot of socialization with their peers are very comfortable with adults so right. like um therapy for kids is usually play therapy Right. And they do drawings and they play games and the therapist can kind of talk. And that's a method that you can use with your own child. If you're right. having difficulty with a teenager, um, you know, don't be like really in their face about it and like sit right. them down and have a serious talk. Like do um, go for a drive with them or, right. you know, be cooking in the kitchen, something that keeps their hands busy and you're going to get way better results from that conversation than if you try to like have a one-on-one, you know, in your face kind of talk.
0: Right yeah i mean a lot, a lot of kids especially teenagers will be very embarrassed about their inner thoughts and feelings and maybe they don't want to trust their parents with it or, or they're just so used to their parent being this point of 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 contention sometimes you know always telling them what to do uh so it kind of goes back to the observational behavior and this can go from uh, you know any any age really it seems to just kind of create situations where you can see how they would behave or react or respond in in given scenarios?
2: We teach observation as a critical aspect of your relationship with your child in Montessori. So observation starts from birth and we use those observations to identify where our child is in their development and what kind of challenges that we can present to them and allow them to explore that's appropriate to their current development. So rather than being dependent upon age we can use that as cues in their actual life and development. I think um, teenagers are particularly interesting because they're driven by their brain chemistry to take risks and to seek out better relationships with peers. There's a lot of theories on evolutionarily why that is, Mm -hmm. but we do know that teenagers, um, adolescents, have low dopamine in their brain, Mm -hmm. so they're seeking out dopamine bursts, and that's why they tend to um, have risky behavior. So providing healthy alternatives like sports or, um, different peer activities, anything that helps them to have an outlet to get those dopamine bursts that doesn't involve dangerous activities is really, really critical.
0: Yeah, really, really good advice. Um, Now, so we've been kind of talking about, you know, children, which is important. They're pretty important. Um, But uh, let's move on to talking about parents a little bit and what parents can do to not just have their lives be completely 100% dedicated to their kids, but what can parents do to sort of take some of their life back and not feel like they're just giving in, especially those who are entrepreneurs and they're working from home and they kind of need their kid to like be at bay for a little bit you know mm-hmm. uh, um, what can parents do to kind of take some time back uh, in, li- in little spurts throughout the day? I think
2: the big thing is just encouraging independent play in your child um, and you can do that from birth by just allowing them to move naturally and not interfere constantly. Other mm-hmm. things that you can do are support their healthy development so um, don't get too wrapped up in access service. Allow them to participate and do their own self-care encourage them to do those things so that they have a sense of independence and they're not constantly looking at you for satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Um, For younger kids, a really great way is to use what we call a yes space, which is just an area of your home that you have set up so that your kid can just have fun there. And there you remove, you know, dangerous, whatever, and let them have their own space so that they can be free and have a good time and not have adult intervention unless it's necessary.
0: Right. It's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's kind of a loose connection point, but uh, I, I'm always thinking about video games <laughs> because I've just grown up with them. But I think about the Minecraft craze and why kids loved Minecraft so much. And most of the time, the kids that I spoke to when I asked them about it, they were just like, I could just do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and these are more like, you know, 10 to 12 to 14 year old kids for the most part. But even super young kids, when they're toddlers and just like you give them a space, I think about almost like the show Rugrats too. Like they had this pretty big playpen and they were able to just like parents just leave them in there and you just you know play and have a good time. Um, and, and that all of that in contrast to this notion of helicopter parenting where you know they're just concerned all the time. Um, do you think there's any merit to kind of keeping too much of a close eye on your? your kid being a positive thing or do you think it kind of one lands in the middle or just i don't yeah. know what do you think of so that?
2: we talk a lot first of all i love the idea of the comparison of the sandbox mentality for video games with the sandbox for young kids right, right. that's a really cool comparison but right. um, as far as helicopter parenting goes i feel like what happens a lot with that is that the parents first create the problem by you know encouraging those behaviors in their child And then when their child's unable to sort of like function on their own, then the parent then punishes them for it and complains like, you're clinging all the time, get away from me, I'm tired of you. Mm. So the best way is to sort of teach this balance between um, authoritative or authoritarian parenting Mm. and permissive parenting. So authoritarian parenting is more like a parent that doesn't connect well with their child, they yell, they're hitters, they might spank, whatever. And then permissive parenting would be like that, that parent that is constantly playing with their child and they're more their friend than a parent. They don't really set boundaries. Right. So authoritative parenting is right in the middle and we provide firm but kind boundaries. And that's what I teach parents, um, to find that middle ground so that they can have mutual respect in a way that's healthy for both the adult and the child so that they can both live their lives separately and together in peace.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, that, that's really great advice. And also I think about, I, I'm trying to think of other ways to like tie in the entrepreneur aspect to it because um, I, I think it all kind of is is built in with this idea of everything that we've talked, out, talked about so far um, when it comes to uh, kind of like the routine aspect. Like if you build it into their routine to know that, okay, mommy's got to do some work now, <laughs> you know, then, this is your time to play and kind of like start to develop that routine and and develop those triggers and action points so that your, your kid will know that it's, this is the time of day when this is going to happen. Um, it sounds like that would be helpful too.
2: And it's really awesome as well for identifying when your child is stressed out, because Mm. if your normal routine is, you know, at this, after breakfast we spend time together and Mm. then we, um, I work, and you play, mm-hmm. and one day the child becomes clingy or is difficult, then you know that there's something going on with your child, right. so by having the routine, you can have a better connection and a better observational skill to know kind of what's happening with them.
0: Yeah, you can establish when something is, is off kilter. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. it takes r- a lot of
2: guesswork out of it.
0: Right, and it's, it's, it's kind of simple scientific method, right? You have to create a baseline, you know, create a control, yes. essentially in order to figure out what's different from the control. Exactly. Science does it again. (laughs) 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 Um, So uh, I think that was it. I think that's all I really got to cover um, for the most part. It seems like also within those routines to, to be willing to have some flexibility as well, Mm -hmm. because like you said, like a a child's going to have varying times of different needs and different wants and, Things are going to come up, or they might be sick, or they might, um, you know, poop at a different time, <laughs> like anything like that. You know, it's not just like, all right, I'm going to close my door and drink my scotch and do my work. <laughs> You're going to stay here until I'm done. It it's just doesn't seem like that's the way it should go.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a friend who um, is a writer, and she once told me about a parent that um, was one of her friends who had a baby and she would put the baby in their bedroom at seven o'clock in the morning or Mm -hmm. seven o'clock at night and then would refuse to go to them until seven in the morning. And the baby had a failure to thrive. And that's because the baby was hungry all night and would cry and she wouldn't go to the child. Mm -hmm. So um, you kind of have to find that balance between your needs and your child's. And if you're not able to meet all of your child's needs, That's not like a failure on your part. It's just ask for help. Like don't, don't be afraid to ask your partner for help, to ask your family for help if you need it. Because um, I think especially women as entrepreneurs or as parents, we tend to just want to like be the leader and do everything and have this like martyr feeling of if I don't do it, then no one else can do it better than me. But the reality is that if we're doing that, we're robbing our partners or our child child's father or, you know, our partner that's our child's other parent, mm-hmm. the opportunity to um, also develop that relationship and participate in the quality care and the quality time. So it's kind of an inadvertently selfish thing to try to do all the care activities ourselves.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and it's important for, again, for the child to experience well-rounded support not just from the expectations of, you know, the mother or the main parent, but uh, to, to know that there's a reliable source of support somewhere. And because I've recently just listened to a podcast episode about attachment theory. Um, I don't know if it's something that you're familiar with.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the idea of attachment theory is essentially um, when a a child is getting support when they need the support, they become a more well-rounded adult in relationships um, and they become less insecure and less dependent on their partner, you know, fulfilling that that void because a parent might be inconsistent with their love or not show love at all in order to try to toughen up the kid or anything like that, um, that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts on attachment theory uh, that could that could kind of help with this conversation? Oh, I think you froze. I might have lost you for a second. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll wait a second and see if she comes back, but uh, to kind of continue Sorry on. The
2: internet's being, it'll come back.
0: Okay, good. I'm back. There you Sorry. No, it's okay. So,
2: Attachment theory is a very commonly misinterpreted um, thing among modern parents. So a lot of parents mm. believe that attachment theory means that you should never allow your child to cry Right. Um, and that you're ruining attachment if you do um, and that you basically have to have physical connection with your child at all times. Right. And I have observed that modern parents who think that they're following attachment theory, but they're actually following a misinterpretation of it right. tend to fall on the side of the helicopter parenting slash, um, you know, permissive parents. Right. And that's not healthy for your child either. Right. The, the actual interpretation of attachment theory is you're creating, it's just, it's completely stress-based, right? Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you've are if you created a good attachment and if you um, have to step out of the room or your child is briefly stressed, that won't affect their development. Right. But if you don't have a good attachment with your child, then there are deeper problems there that will probably affect your child for their whole life. So attachment theory is not really meant to encourage parents to never take time to themselves or never allow separation it's just meant to say hey you create a life of safety and security for your child and they will thrive but if you fail to do that and you have to really really be kind of neglectful to fail to do that Mm -hmm. that's when you're going to start to see problems with your child's development so it's kind of a controversial thing actually you see a lot of parents online that sort of argue about it but i've read the actual research papers about it and i find that it's widely misinterpreted
0: yeah and and it can be difficult to talk about that sort of stuff because Mm -hmm. again it's open to interpretation and someone just will hear that and they're like oh no i just need to run to my kid the first at the first sign of trouble every single time and it's so i mean i guess i guess if there's a way to describe it what would essentially be the difference between showing your so, your child support versus running to them at the first sign of trouble?
2: I think it's observation. You yeah. have to observe your child as an infant and you'll start to figure out what are their cues to say they're tired, they're mm-hmm. overstimulated, they're hungry. By observation, you can start to tell the difference between those using body language or crying when it starts to become Less helpful is if your child cries out of frustration, and then right. you go ahead and take care of it for them. Right. You're basically stealing from them the opportunity to learn how to move their body, how to achieve their goals, what they're capable of. You're telling them, I don't trust you, and right. you shouldn't trust yourself. That's So you want to be able to find that balance between supporting all of their basic needs and their emotional needs, but also giving them an opportunity to learn and extend themselves so that they feel comfortable doing that as they grow.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if you're working with your child as opposed to doing stuff for your child every single time.
2: Yes, I talk a lot about acts of service and how acts of service can get out of control. We mean the most we need, we mean the best for them. And that's a way that we can express love. But if it's the only way we express love, then the message that we're giving to our children is that you only belong and you're only loved when you're being served. And it becomes a problem with behavior later on because children don't know how to adjust when another child is born or they're, they go to daycare or school where they're not receiving acts of service and they have difficulty adjusting because they don't know what belonging looks like.
0: Yeah. Um, I had another thought, but I completely lost it. So it's probably, it's probably a good time to wrap this up. This has been a really great conversation. I think some of the main takeaways to think about are, you know, observing and working with your kids. Actually, nope, now I remember what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> so let's see if we could extend this just a little bit longer. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, in general, um, particularly when it comes to adults, is this concept of ego, especially when it comes to parents and children you know we pass along our genes our physical genes our dna um but our ego wants to pass on as well we want to uh, we want to uh, uh, influence our kids to be like us or to not be like us because we've done something bad or something like that um do you have any general thoughts on on someone Wanting to like pass their ego on to their kids or or essentially not treating their kids like their own individual and trying to treat their kids like an extension of them instead?
2: I think um anything that you do that doesn't respect your child as an individual human or treat them like they're an accessory and not a person is mm-hmm. detrimental to your child's development. Something that I think is really interesting is that not so long ago, we used to think that genetics basically um, were, Fixed and that they you couldn't change your genetics, so the genes that you received when you were born would affect how intelligent you are, how productive you will be. You know, and that's why some of the like the racism kind of stuff that happened, where people would say, Oh, if you have darker skin, then you're not, you know, going to be successful in life. It's interesting to me that we have moved beyond that because we've shown that environment is so much a part of influencing our gene expression. So your child might have your genetics or your um, partner's genetics, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have the same gene expression. So it works both ways. If you had a difficult childhood that affected you in your life and you want to make a better change for your child, it means that the environment that you create for them is going to offer you that opportunity to allow their genes to express differently than yours did so that maybe they won't have the same challenges that you had but right. it can also be a negative thing because it can be hard to recreate the environment that you want to get the proper gene expression and it's it's not it's not subjective but it's really not known because there's not a lot of research in this area so how do we really know what's right or what's wrong and the only way is through observation intuition and just you know, trial and error, we're experimenting on our kids and they're experimenting on us. And that's how we develop a relationship, you know,
0: science. I know. <laughs> um, Bill Nye said it best. Um, <laughs> and um, so I, I guess I, I probably should have asked this at the top. And I guess the last thing that we can talk about as we move uh, towards the end of this is, uh, how did you get involved in in this in a sort of um, uh I guess a scientific perspective, you know, starting to understand observationally about kids and teaching people like, how did this become something that you wanted to do?
2: So I'm a mechanical engineer by education Mm -hmm. and uh, I specialize in root cause analysis. So when my son was born, I got super frustrated because I would try to find information on his behavior and people would give a lot of advice, but nobody really talked about like why is our child doing this? And um, what can we do to influence it, to make it better, to change it? And it really frustrated me. So I started to educate myself. And I read a lot of books, but I also have taken a lot of courses. Um, For example, I'm a Montessori parent-infant educator. So that was one of the routes I went. And I'm just about done with my self-reg champion certification, which is about emotional regulation with Mm -hmm. our children. Nice. Um, And through doing all this education, I have found that because I'm very analytical and I'm very science focused, it's easy for me to listen to a parent's problems and help them identify the root cause without getting overly caught up in the emotions. Right, Uh, And it can be really helpful for them to be able to, to see that and then be able to take actionable steps to work through it instead of just getting advice that's anecdotal or based on somebody's brother who went through this Right. I can give them advice that's based on real data that real things that have happened, you know, actionable data sets of what really works and what doesn't. And I really enjoy doing it. It's, it's fun.
0: Yeah. And it's through work. Like what you're doing is that over time we can clear up those misconceptions and they can just become common, solidified, actual useful advice that we can take into future generations. I think you're doing mm-hmm. great work.
2: Thanks. I'm really glad to hear that other people appreciate, um, you know, the information that I'm trying to share. And I hope to influence lots of parents so that my child grows up in a generation of people who are more empathetic and tolerant of each other and more welcoming of change, because I think that can only be a good thing.
0: Science.
1: Science.
0: Yes. (laughs) You know, I've, I've been making like, you know, career shifts and stuff and, and leaning more into, my informational powers as well, because I'm I'm quite good at, at, um, um, at research and kind of clearing up misconceptions. And that's a reason why we have these interviews is because I like to bring up my own misconceptions and be honest about it so that I can try to get some clear answers. Like I literally just heard this podcast about attachment theory and I, I figure you're a great source to clear some of that up. So hopefully if somebody was in a similar situation to mine, they can get some more Clear advice from you and this episode. So um, with that in mind, where can people learn about you and what you do or get in touch with you uh, to work with you?
2: The best place to find me is on Facebook. Um, you can find either my personal profile under Katie Schweitzer um, or my business page, Guilt Free Families. I also have a website, guiltfreefamilies.com, which is currently under renovation, but uh the new site should be up soon. So um But the biggest thing that I like to help parents with is sleep problems because I find that that has the biggest impact on you and your child and your um, stress and your feelings of uh, being able to be successful. So um, I love to help parents with that if they're looking to reach out and find somebody to help them.
0: Wonderful. So if you guys have any questions, for those who are listening, uh, if you're watching this on Facebook, leave a comment below with a question. I'm sure Katie will be checking the comments to see if there are any uh, questions and she'll happily help you. And then um, if you're listening on Anchor, leave a voice message or hit me up at uh, Let's Go C-Notes on any of my social channels. to, If you want to ask me any questions, I can pass that along to her as well. Um, feel free to leave a review, all that good stuff. And um, patreon.com dopamine, of course. Because I need money. <laughs> um, so, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, thanks for having me. This was really fun. This has been great. Thank you, Katie. And uh, we'll catch you. Next. We'll catch you guys. You guys. There's the camera. Next time. See ya. <laughs>